Thank you. Uh, good afternoon and welcome to the discussion. Uh, today's topic is Internet Under Siege, Analyzing the Recent Wave of Internet Attacks. Uh, we have with us Josh Corman and Alan Friedman. Um, Josh is director of the Cyber Statecraft Initiative at the Atlantic Council uh, and co-founder of IamTheCavalry.org. He previously worked as CTO for Sonatype uh, and director of security intelligence for Akamai. Alan Friedman is the director of cybersecurity initiatives at the National Telecommunications and Information Agency and the U.S. Department of Commerce, as well as a noted cybersecurity researcher. As you all know, there was a major distributed denial of service attack on Friday that took down uh, large portions of the Internet uh, and the ability for uh, people on the Internet to get to sites such as Twitter, Netflix, and the New York Times. This attack hit a company called Dyne that manages critical parts of the Internet's infrastructure with servers monitoring and rerouting Internet traffic. Um, a denial of service attack is exactly what it sounds like. The goal is to overwhelm a single point's ability to respond to uh, requests or service requests uh, by flooding it with traffic or reducing its um, compute power or other technical means. Dyne acts like a switchboard for the Internet. So it hosts a large segment of uh, domain name systems, which is kind of like the Internet directory uh, for IP addresses. So that when you connect to a site, um, it uses the directory, looks it up, and then goes and, uh, and connects. This, uh, this DDoS attack was built based off of the Internet of Things uh, botnet called Mirai. The Mirai botnet was created um, and open sourced or released to the world a couple of weeks ago. The first target of the Mirai botnet was a site called BrianKrebs.com. Brian Krebs is a journalist noted for working on uh, financially motivated adversaries, um, credit card fraud, uh, and other things like that. The uh, attack against his site was about 650 gigabytes per second. That was the largest one uh, ever suffered. About a week later, uh, that record was broken by the same botnet uh, with the attack hitting one terabyte per second. And the most recent attack against Dyne I've seen numbers citing, uh, I think, about 1.2 terabytes per second. Now, this botnet is powered by essentially uh, poorly configured and secured webcams and DVR devices that are openly exposed to the Internet with default login credentials. The Mirai botnet goes and looks for these devices, logs into them, starts running a script to then attack other sites uh, and to be pointed at different things based on what the uh, botnet controller decides they want to do with it. The botnet author, when he open sourced the toolkit, said that he was actively pulling 300 to 380,000 devices every time he did a scan. An Akamai report from a couple of weeks ago identified as uh, 2 million IoT devices that have a flaw that's been known for 12 years. Um, it's a flaw in, in SSH, 
that would allow a device to take part in this type of a botnet as well. Uh, at this point, uh, we're still kind of in the fog of things, so there's as much that we don't know as that we do know. Uh, but we will tell you what we do know, uh, and with that, I'll turn it over to Josh and then to Alan. Hello, all. This is Joshua Corman. I'm the director of the Cyber Statecraft Initiative here at the Atlantic Council. Um, this particular botnet and DDoS are not the first to be a denial of service attack, nor are they the first to be a botnet, but I think what should command our attention are a few things that we'd like to call out. Um, number one, you can launch DDoS attacks from anywhere, but historically they've been from consumer uh, personal computers, like uh, your laptop or your desktop at home or infected devices in a corporate network, and there's plenty of those devices to do very large DDoS attacks. In fact, the the rise of hacktivism and anonymous and other groups um, punctuated several years of these virtual sit-ins and denial of service attacks. So the presence of EDOS is not new. But in most of those cases, there's someone who, there's, there are aftermarket security technologies like antivirus and firewall. There are people who are um, updating them, like Microsoft may issue monthly security updates and people maintain and try to keep up with those updates. Um, there's someone paying attention to the performance and the activity on the Internet. Uh, one of the, the bigger challenges here that's risen in our blind spot is this, the Internet of Things, these devices which may range from your Nest thermostat to your refrigerator to your home router to your video game console to your doorbell. Uh, we're increasingly adding software and connectivity to nearly every device in our, in our lives, including cars, medical devices, uh, smart cities, public infrastructure, public transportation. And as these devices become hyper-connected, uh, the economics aren't there, the ownership isn't there, the aftermarket security isn't there. So in our uh, race to adopt technology for their immediate and obvious benefit, we seldom do the cost-benefit equation to notice the deferred uh, cost uh, and security risks that these incur. And because they are largely unmanaged and the overwhelming majority are also unpatchable if they are found to be insecure, you have this large and growing army of uh, devices which can be um, brought to bear to attack anyone for anything. It could be used to serve up spam. It could be used in a denial of service attack like we saw against Brian Krebs' website to silence a journalist. It could be used to disrupt communications or e-commerce. Uh, and unlike their predecessors, there's less span of control, less incentive to manage, and less uh, likelihood that we're going to get the security right. So to me, this is really the, the canary in the coal mine. Um, these devices are essentially a manifestation. The outages we saw on Friday are a manifestation of our security debt that we've been allowed to accumulate, and the compounding interest has essentially created a tidal wave. Um, and this is just the beginning. Um, uh, whether you quote Gartner or Intel statistics, the Internet of Things is growing very rapidly with the volume and variety of devices connecting. And if the default posture of these devices is insecure, unpatchable, unmanaged, uh, then we should expect the, this uh, zombie army to uh, be available and to grow to levels that cannot be stopped by existing countermeasures. Uh, you heard in my bio that I used to be the director of security intelligence at Akamai, and essentially when you get DDoS, it's a matter of the volume in versus the volume you can, you can uh, deflect or absorb. And at some point, you saturate what's economically realistic to, to block. In point of fact, um, for a business decision, Brian Krebs 
who was being shielded by Akamai, they opted to no longer defend him as it was cost prohibitive and interrupted the performance of their other customers. So there's still some headroom for absorbing, deflecting, and handling these large volume attacks. The question and the very serious risk remains, will the countermeasures scale at the same speed or velocity as the rise and adoption of, of IoT or the Internet of Things? Um, this is essentially um, in part fueled because the economics are such that we want these technologies, we want them fast to market, we want them inexpensive. So um, many of these devices uh, have incredibly low margins, have no security staff, and in lieu of any sort of uh, minimum hygiene standards for cybersecurity for these devices, um, you're going to see a, a greater and greater portion of Internet-connected devices be uh, insecure, low hygiene, unmanageable, and potentially brought to bear to do larger attacks. So while I'm concerned about some outages of e-commerce revenue for the afternoon on Friday, and while I'm concerned about the uh, the ability for people to access timely news, especially during an election cycle. Um, I think we should be even more concerned if these uh, attacks are directed at safety-critical systems in the state and local government, at hospitals, which are incredibly prone, at um, other systems which depend upon uh, persistent and available access to the Internet and connectivity, and uh, this is in some ways a gift that we had an inconvenience that got our attention, but perhaps uh, could maybe motivate and catalyze some corrective action. When we have uncomfortable truths, as we're encountering here, uh, it necessitates that we explore and give serious consideration to uncomfortable solutions. And while we have been loath to regulate or create standards that might stifle innovation in, in IT and Internet technology, at some point, uh, the very barriers to entry, the very economic harm, the very stifling of innovation that we, we wished to avoid um, may be occurring because of lost revenue to these uh, Internet services or, uh, or devices that are rendered useless or permanently damaged if they're attacked. Uh, I'll pause and uh, give a chance for Alan to make some opening remarks. Thank you, Josh. This is Alan Friedman from NTIA. Uh, the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, part of the Department of Commerce, has a strong interest in promoting an active and dynamic uh, digital ecosystem. And, of course, part of that is security and trustworthiness. Uh, we did a study recently uh, with the U.S. Department of with the Census Bureau uh, of households with Internet access and found that almost half of all households with Internet access actually made decisions not to do things online because of concerns about privacy and security, and that's in sort of existing traditional Internet. Uh, IoT, of course, adds a new dimension. Department of Commerce has an ongoing process to understand what the role of government should be with IoT. Earlier this summer, uh, we asked for comments. We got over 130 comments from industry, from security experts, from civil society, from academic researchers, uh, and the number one issue uh, that we heard about was security. Uh, there needs to be an active role in security. At the same time, there's a strong concern in making sure that uh, coming in too quickly and demanding prescribed solutions, uh, we heard from business stakeholders, could harm the overall ecosystem. So the challenge is, how do we make sure that we don't destroy this ecosystem through security risks uh, while also not destroying this ecosystem through imposing solutions that will choke uh, growth 
at an unreasonable uh, level. We've been working with our colleagues, uh, the commerce colleagues at NIST, who have been doing a lot of work on the cyber-physical systems domain, uh, which is traditionally, uh, another way to think of that is as the industrial internet, uh, large uh, technical industrial control systems that are used in power plants, oil refineries, they manage the infrastructure on which we all depend, uh, and they're built without security in mind. Uh, there's a real focus on how do you uh, bolt on security for uh, large pieces of technology that don't have security in mind, and how do you manage security for the existing infrastructure as well as building out new security. MCI has been coupling this effort uh, with a focus on the consumer side of things. Uh, obviously, a great place to start is saying, hey, guys, let's build security in. The challenge is IoT itself is such a messy concept. It covers everything from a wearable fitness tracker to a car uh, that there isn't a clear understanding of what is the optimal path for any one actor. That's something that we need to help individual organizations make those risk uh, assessments for themselves. Instead, NCI decided to focus on what happens in security after the product is already out. How do we come together and find a common vision of post-market security uh, for devices? What's the support that's offered? We're using a concept called the multi-stakeholder process where NTIA doesn't hold the pen. Instead, we invite uh, stakeholders to come together, both those who represent industry and those who represent the security advocacy community, civil society, and say, what needs to be done to have a common vision of security support, of upgradability, of patchability? Why does it need to be a common vision? Because these are consumer devices and we need to help consumers make a shared, uh, a single set of decisions. We can't ask someone to have a single decision for a web camera versus a TV. The more we can empower transparency across a range of verticals, the better off we're going to be. At the same time, we need to offer some technical support on the back end and support those with existing standards, do a gap analysis to identify what standards aren't there, and bring together the necessary industry components to build those standards as quickly as possible. One idea that was floated at our first meeting last week in Austin, which was co-located with the Consumer Technology Association, in order to really make sure that we had the manufacturers buy-in from the start, an idea that was floated was to create an open framework uh, for upgradability that small businesses could use so they didn't have to invent this practice from the start, and that we could also use for orphan devices, that an organization that was more civically minded could help uh, maintain devices uh, whose manufacturers no longer support them or worse, have gone out of business. We think there's a lot of promise in doing this the voluntary round. Uh, we know that our stakeholders understand that there's a sense of urgency, and we believe that by having the first round of this being voluntary, uh, we're creating a necessary but not sufficient component to this ecosystem to ramp up security. Obviously, since we're talking about uh, new features, this isn't going to help with uh, devices that are in the field now. But the sooner we can change uh, consumer awareness and bring about uh, a greater appreciation of the need for security, the sooner we can empower uh, enterprise purchasers to make sure that they have the tools to buy uh, what they need, the better we can uh, move forward in progress. So with that, I'll turn it over to Bill. Uh, I'll give it back to Josh for a real quick response.
So uh, we're going to, in the follow-up email, send some links to some work that, that Bo and I have worked on. Uh, we also have been on this journey, even before we got the Atlanta Council, uh, through IamTheCavalry.org. We published something called the Five-Star Cyber Safety Framework for Connected Vehicles. Um, and in that, we basically talk about IoT. We have a similar document for medical devices called the Hippocratic Oath for Connected Medical Devices. And essentially what it says is um, all systems fail, and as such, uh, these Internet-connected devices that can affect public safety and human life require five ready postures for failure. And there's fancy names in there, but the quick version is um, each of these devices should be able to articulate how they avoid failure, how they take help avoiding failure from willing researchers uh, without suing them, how do they capture, study, and learn from failure, how do they have a prompt and agile response to failure, and how do they contain and isolate failure. And um, in a, a, a brief that we wrote on smart homes, we further extended that for the long tail of consumer devices, which are more varied than, say, medical devices or automobiles. But those basic principles, especially we believe, are table stakes for having a sustainable uh, and, and, and balanced and viable Internet of Things. Um, now, whether those are voluntary standards, as Alan's been working through NTA process with industry buy-in, uh, whether they, some of these have to become mandatory safety standards, like we have with seatbelts in our cars or uh, FDA um, guidelines for connected medical devices or some combination, uh, if we're going to have an Internet of Things, and that Internet of Things can be attacked, they, they in most likelihood uh, need to be patchable. Um, there are some pretty interesting and pretty scary ideas floating around about how to handle the next surge of attacks like we saw on Friday, ranging from things like uh, we should destroy these devices that are connected and vulnerable so they don't cause harm on the Internet. I can't imagine the property damage on that, but if they're doing more harm than good, that's one of the reasons that's been getting ideas. There's ideas about Internet filtering uh, either geographically or at the ISP level. Um, and the truth is it's going to take a – there's no single silver bullet to fix this. Uh, but what we do think is uh, an unpatchable device is one that uh, represents more risk to the Internet of Things um, than others, both at the individual level of how it may affect you, your family, your business, or your, your information, but also in the collective level is really what we saw on Friday when they're brought to bear in aggregate. Um, so we have uh, long resisted uncomfortable ideas like uh, food labels, for IoT or Internet of Things, like um, some sort of indicator to a consumer to know uh, more secure from less secure products. We're also at a state uh, after 30 years after there were fatalities in a medical device with, due to software errors where we still lack any meaningful software liability, uh, and we've been afraid for a very long time for very good reasons that introduction of some sort of liability on the producers of software and IT may uh, have uh, detrimental effects on the economy, barriers to entry, cost of margins, et cetera. And while we have a large list of good reasons to resist looking at things like minimum safety and hygiene standards or like software liability, on the other half of the scale, as we're increasingly seeing, there's a large and growing list of arguments to have a serious look at these things. Um, and if you want to look at the Internet not so much, or IT not so much as a market like uh, you know, video games, music, or other things. It's really a market-enabling market. And to, to overstress a metaphor here, and no metaphors are perfect, if we have a highway system and a roadway system, um, if individual vehicles on the road are not worthy or safe enough to be on the road, it can clog traffic uh, and, and introduce safety risks to the rest of the, of the, 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 um, the cars on the road. 
at some point, um, our neglect will rise to the level where it will have such a deleterious effect on commerce, on safety, on the free flow of information, that we're likely to be motivated. One thing to keep in mind on the Internet of Things, though, is when you're talking about very large, very expensive uh, components, the, the response times may be measured in uh, years or even decades for some of the larger equipment. And for the lower end devices, there may never be a cost-effective way to introduce uh, minimum standards, uh, and we may actually drive some innovation out of the market. But these hard conversations about what is a reasonable minimum standard, what is the liability model, how could you have more trustworthy devices participating on our Internet superhighways uh, must start at some point. But another uncomfortable truth is even if we go for something really aggressive like a software liability or minimum hygiene regime, uh, that doesn't stop other countries from selling other devices to, uh, that participate on a single shared Internet. So there will be a long tail of legacy devices and some other devices that uh, just fail to meet these standards. And we're going to have to take a, a, a multiple solution approach and make sure we do this in a way that is cost-effective, economic, but also preserving of freedom uh, and, and the ways that we want the Internet to work. Um, we don't have all the solutions to these, but we know it's time to start having some of these uncomfortable uh, conversations because if the growth rate of the IoT is growing as we expect and we see more attacks like we saw on Friday, uh, you have to dig this well before you're thirsty, and then the response time will take a significant amount of time, effort, planning, research and development, and the life cycle of these devices. Thank you. At this time, we will open the floor for questions. If you would like to ask a question, please press the star key followed by the one key on your touchtone phone now. Questions will be taken in the order in which they are received. If at any time you would like to remove yourself from the questioning queue, just press star 2. Again, to ask a question, please press star 1 at this time. This is Bo. I'll start the question asking. Um, so, Josh and or Alan, uh, do we know who's conducting these attacks, and how would we know who's conducting these attacks? I think my first stat is, um, given the, the number of known vulnerabilities, exploitable vulnerabilities, and the number and variety of device types, um, pretty much anyone could do this, and especially if we're talking about this particular attack, given that the source code and the, the uh, technology used for the Mariah botnet have been open source or given away, um, whoever wrote it may not be who's using it now. And any other adversaries, whether they be criminal, nation state, activists, as long as they have the technical sophistication, they can take up this code, repurpose it. The payload could be different. It could be to send spam. It could be to, uh, to do ransomware, like you see taking out uh, the spate of ransomware attacks on U.S. hospitals, for example. So now that the source code is readily available to anyone, attribution will be much harder. Okay. Um, have we got any questions from the phones? Yes. Our first question will come from Lorenzo Franceschi with Motherload Vice Media. Hi, everyone. Thanks for the call. Uh, this question is for both Josh or Alan, I guess. Um, and my question is, you know, other than the attackers themselves, who are obviously responsible for whoever they are, you know, but who is responsible for these attacks other than them? Can we blame the manufacturers um, of these devices who then put security into the devices? Um, what's the responsibility of the ISPs uh, who might not be doing enough to filter, like, spoofing and other techniques? 
you know, and, and also I guess the second part of the question is who or how can we solve this problem? And who can do it? Right. Well, I, this is Josh again. I, I think it's a shared responsibility. There's this, uh, <laughs> given that he just won the Nobel Prize for Literature, uh, there's a Bob Dylan song called Who Killed Davy Moore about a boxer. And it's kind of saying that everybody's to blame. It's, uh, it's, um, we want innovative devices. We want Indiegogo and Kickstarter innovations from two, two people in a garage. We want devices that are uh, cheap. We want um, to not stifle innovation, so we, we're loath to and reticent to introduce uh, regulation on software or IT uh, pretty much across the government. Uh, we participate in a global economy, so even if we don't make these things, um, other countries may make them cheap, cheaply and uh, insecurely. And, you know, we did what we believed was the right risk decision with the information that we had. I think at some point, and maybe we're here, um, that cost-benefit starts to tip, and then we may, through market demand, ask for more secure things. I think one intermediary step that I think Alan and I agree on is the idea that uh, an informed buyer can make better risk decisions. Um, so if people are reluctant to introduce um, safety standards for Internet of Things devices that may write, you know, cycle innovation, raise price points, et cetera, um, we can at least start to focus on being transparent as to which products uh, are patchable, for how long they're willing to commit to patching, um, what kind of cybersecurity hygiene there is. You're seeing uh, free market uh, attempts from uh, Mudge and his wife uh, have the CITL, the Cyber Independent Test Labs, which are trying to do some sort of binary analysis of uh, which um, software products are more or less secure than others. Underwriters Laboratories has recently introduced their cyber assurance program initially for medical and industrial control systems to try to have some sort of minimum assurance level for security. Um, there have been attempts uh, in purchasing uh, rubrics through the Mayo Clinic, for example, adding a lot of rigorous criteria for medical devices before they buy them. The Financial Services ISAC is doing similar things. So one thing we could do is make it clearer to individuals who buy in IoT um, the relative security they're getting. Now, that solves your direct risk from your direct purchase. What we saw on Friday is an entirely different category of risk, which is uh, the externalities, to use an economic term, that come from I might do the right thing for me to, to say I don't care if I get hacked on this, but the device I purchased now hacks my neighbor or hurts Netflix revenue or Spotify. Um, so I think there's lots of blame to go around. Uh, I care a little bit less about assigning blame and more about what's the role of the carriers, what's the role of regulators, what's the role of manufacturers, how do we start improving the trustworthiness um, of these devices so that we have less things to fight and filter, uh, but then also what are reasonable trade-offs between technology and liberties uh, to do the filtering for whatever remains. <laughs> Alan Friedman, I'd also add that I am fairly confident that many of the manufacturers and service providers are having these same discussions today. Uh, so a vendor that was uh, that has been linked to a number of the vulnerable devices in the Mirai botnet, Hangzhou Zhongmai, uh, issued a recall over the weekend for a number of their affected products. Uh, and, you know, again, they'll still be out there, and we will always have certain legacy issues uh, but I think this is the beginning of a sense of awareness, uh, and part of the role of government here is to, when necessary, uh, create the rooms and, and uh, catalyze this discussion, 
help accelerate this discussion so that there can be collaboration across industry. This isn't something that each company is going to solve by themselves. Uh, there's going to have to be collaboration uh, between technologists, engineers, uh, security strategists, and ultimately uh, those who think about the business model of each organization. You know, just to add, I, I think I've said this a few different ways, but I think one of the reasons that this weekend was particularly troubling for a lot of us in the cybersecurity research community is that we've been trying to think of how to eat this elephant one bite at a time. And there's a lot of IoT devices, a lot of categories, and we have a very strong instinct to focus on safety-critical industries first, like medical devices, cars, trains, smart cities, building automation software, where bits and bytes meet flesh and blood. Um, and yet, what I think we were, with the cognitive dissonance from this, this particular set of attacks is that you can't really neglect the lower priority devices. I, I've been quoted many times saying I don't give a, uh, a care if my refrigerator gets hacked and sends spam. You know, our home PCs send spam. But I think what we saw on Friday is we should care if our refrigerators send spam because in the aggregate, uh, it represents a, a fairly um, large uh, tidal wave that can that can crush maybe safety critical targets um, or financial services institutions or silence journalists or uh, disrupt the dissemination of inter information at critical times. So it's a little overwhelming that we may need to focus on all connected devices, um, even if that sounds like a very difficult proposition. But think of this almost like a uh, again a bad a bad metaphor, but if we have a malaria problem or a Zika problem come from mosquitoes, you know, you, you kind of have to pay attention to the swamps, right? Uh, where we neglect to keep good hygiene is where these things, uh, you know, the pestilence and the, and the disease comes from. And uh, this long tail, this uh, neglected IoT uh, that's too cheap or too uh, small of a product to be maintained uh, is starting to represent a, a fairly significant risk. All right. Uh, who's next? Thank you. Our next question will come from Jose Pegolieri with CNN. Hi there. Uh, thank you so much for doing this call, guys. Can you hear me? Yeah. yeah. Okay, great. Uh, I've got two questions for you. Um, if you can answer both separately, I'd appreciate it. Uh, one is, uh, when will we be able to see a specific list of the devices that were used in this attack and explicit instructions for consumers on what they can do? The second question is, it seems to me like this is an economic problem of misplaced cost because if the response is for people to chuck out their bad IoT stuff, all right, fine, that makes sense in the bigger picture, but as an individual, you're not going to do it because you're checking out something that you bought and you're not going to do it for the greater good. Indeed. Um, this is Josh, I'll go first. Uh, as for the list, I, I know that's being actively researched and we keep seeing new participants. Um, as far as knowing the list, I think as a consumer, I'd want to know if I was affected in contributing. Um, but I think that this is no specific failure of the specific set of devices. There are plenty of vulnerabilities. Um, I, I know in my last role as a CTO at Sonosite, where I was looking at the third-party open-source global supply chain as third-party parts, um, the average application had about a quarter of its software components had known vulnerabilities in them, and exploitable vulnerabilities in them, and that was the, the ones that were considered to be pretty decent hygiene. Any one of those could lead to an attack like this. So uh, there have been attempts, even on the Hill, the uh, Chairman Royce of the Foreign Relations uh, Committee had introduced a bill called the Cyber Supply Chain Management and Transparency Act of 2014. It attempted to, to at least create some sort of uh, 
software ingredients list to build materials to list out the known vulnerabilities so that at purchase time you might be able to tell which products had better hygiene than others. Uh, and at, during an active attack, you could tell if you were affected and where you were affected because you knew which, you know, version of OpenSSL you were using, for example. Uh, during a heart bleed attack or maybe the hospitals could have told, been, uh, been aware if they were going to hit, hit by the SAMSAM ransomware that's done so much damage, including shutting down patient care at Hollywood Presbyterian Hospital earlier this spring. So I would say that um, I don't know how you would help the customer if we aren't also empowering them and if they're not able to update the firmware if they're not able to change the default password, we're kind of putting a burden on them that they have no span of control to remediate. Um, and then as far as your second point, um, and I'll hand to Alan, the misplaced cost, I do think what we're looking at here is potentially is uh, market failure. Um, we, we definitely have not identified the true cost of these devices in the system. We have not placed the cost burden on the least cost avoider. Um, we are passing downstream risk. Uh, to the buyer, they have information asymmetry. There's a whole bunch of economic, economic analysis that Bell and I had been working on to look at by at which point and by which criteria might some sort of um, uh, economic adjustment or liability adjustment be merited. Uh, so we have we are actively working on that. You might even see some of that language in my testimony to the Presidential Commission on Enhancing Cybersecurity, and we'll be publishing more to come on that. But we definitely have misplaced costs, uh, information asymmetry, perverse incentives, and you know, one could argue that this is almost a tragedy of the commons, that, that rarer issue of a tragedy of the commons type issue. Uh, so I, I completely agree there's some misplaced costs. The question is going to be um, how to introduce change without breaking innovation or, or markets. Um, I'm getting the nod that Alan agrees or doesn't agree. <laughs> I think uh, one more thing on that, um, one of the fights that has happened in the security community is if you have a $10 Indiegogo Kickstarter device and people like having that $10 device, if you were to introduce some sort of minimum hygiene or uh, better placed cost, to your point, Jose, maybe that device goes up to $15, you know, or maybe it drives everyone below that price point out of the market because they can't be tall enough to ride that cost structure. But the interesting fight this weekend was, okay, well, what if uh, these devices are no longer purchased because they're not patchable? Or what if they're destroyed? Or what if you have to do a costly recall? And even free marketed adaptation just says, okay, let's raise it to $15. So there is a true cost in the system, and what we want to do is uh, aggressively identify that optimum. All right, thanks. Uh, next question. Thank you. Again, to ask a question, you can press star 1 at this time. Our next question will come from Joseph Marks with NetScout. Hi, thank you very much for uh, doing the call, Josh and Alan. So the, um, the, a standard line from government officials in the last uh, several years has been that the true threat uh, in cyberspace comes from nation states and the things that hacktivists can do are uh, very large nuisances sometimes um, and sometimes smaller nuisances. Does something like this, which, uh, again, we don't know exactly where it came from, it seems like it very well could have been from uh, uh, non-state actors, does that change that analysis? So this is Josh. Um, if you make a little XY axis for yourself on capability from zero to infinity <laughs> and uh, an intent, um, I think we spend an awful lot of time on the, 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 the phrase like sophisticated attacker or state-sponsored espionage or determined adversary. Um, the sad truth is there, there's a, a, a very large... Um, 
set of unsophisticated attackers who are sophisticated enough. Uh, so when we launched Simon the Cavalry three years ago, for example, I was a whole lot less concerned that uh, financially motivated attackers or nation states may try to take life. And a whole lot more concerned that ideological actors who uh, have high intent but low capability um, may be sophisticated enough to take advantage of these, this, this poor hygiene. Um, if you're familiar with tools like Shodan, you can use that to search for industrial control systems or hospitals or things directly connected to the Internet, and the consequences of failure may involve property damage or loss of life. Um, so I, I think it does us a disservice to exclusively focus on high-capability nation-states or rational economic adversaries. The question is, if our hygiene is low enough, we've opened ourselves to, to most categories of accidents and adversaries, and I believe part of the goal of the Cyber Statecraft Initiative and I Am the Cavalry is really to raise that hygiene line high enough to exhaust the attack capacities of these uh, less capable adversaries. There's really no amount of uh, defense that's cost-effective that's going to exhaust the attack capacity of a nation-state or a sufficiently skilled and funded organized criminal gang. But there's quite a bit we can do to exhaust the attack capacity of ideological actors, of, of activists, or of uh, lone wolf actors. Does that answer your question? Yes, thank you. Thank you. Our next question will come from Jan Pora with Freelance uh, Journalist. Uh, hi. Uh, so, yeah, I'm Jan Pora. I write a bunch for Ars Technica, although I'm here on the call as a freelancer. Uh, question for Josh. Um, you said we need a multiple solution uh, approach that's cost effective but also preserving of freedoms. Uh, it's been said, never let a good crisis go to waste. And when all you have is a red team hammer, every problem looks like a nail. How do we prevent what would essentially be martial law on the Internet? How do we prevent this from being used as an excuse for yet further surveillance and control? Well, I think uh, many, re many knee-jerk reactions. Um, uh, on the risk of introducing unintended consequences. Uh, I do think that, you know, I fully expect if we haven't seen them already for several people to whip out their previous pet projects to say, if we had only done what I had wanted to do, then this wouldn't have happened. I, I don't know that any of those are necessarily true, especially if we fight the symptoms and not the underlying root causes. Um, we could look at volumetric DDoS here, but that's just the payload this time. It could be a very different payload on other attacks. Um, and this is one of the reasons why we need more collaboration between the, the technical community and the policy community, and we need to build more trust in common vocabulary, because there are very serious trade-offs involved here. We want to do what's right for the economy. We want to do what's right for national security. We want to do what's right for public safety. We want to do what's right for, for freedoms, and those trade-offs can be difficult, as you've seen with other high-profile cases. Uh, even something as simple as, uh, I'm using scare quotes when I say simple, is the debate over the iPhone with the San Bernardino case between Apple and the FBI, uh, many of the debates surrounding this particular attack on Friday um, could get even more complex than that. Um, as far as Internet filtering, Internet governance, uh, inspection of traffic, uh, et cetera. So I, I don't have the answer uh, after one weekend of talking about it, but I think it's, it's high time we start talking about how we want to make those trade-offs instead of letting them be made for us. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Our next question will come from Paul Roberts with the Security Ledger. Hey, everybody. Uh, 
thanks for doing this. Um, so fixing fixing the security of all the endpoints uh, on the internet seems like a boil the ocean type uh, conversation, and I think Josh, you you certainly alluded to that. Um, what what about um, more targeted fixes? Uh, I know the Internet Society's mutually agreed norms for routing security or manner uh, proposal. I think um, uh, there have been a, a few other similar types of proposals for addressing the specific types of insecurity in DNS or Internet routes that enable these types of uh, attacks. Obviously, that doesn't fix the whole problem, but it would have fixed the massive IoT You may have lost Paul. Um, you still there, Paul? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, where did you lose me? I'm sorry about that. I think we got most of the questions, unless you have more. Yeah, I was asking about manners, and I was asking about Okay. Well, or routing in general. So there's a there's a very wide range of technical interests on this call. Uh, a short answer, without going too far, is there's a continuum of things that would have a tactical versus strategic effect here. I think um, you know for this particular attack, you know, lengthening the time to live for DNS entries is you know potentially would soften the blow from Friday. Uh, having more than one DNS provider would have helped in this particular attack. Um, using anti-DDoS scrubbing services if you have the, the budget to do so, which many targets won't, and that will affect the economics in and of itself, uh, can absorb these to a point. I think if you just look at this as a, a draining the swamp kind of issue, I think one has to look at some of those endpoints, at least the future endpoints, uh, so that we're, we're, we're flooding with less volume of, of vulnerable endpoints while also pursuing some of the things you're talking about. Um, there has been some talks about, um, you know, Jeff Moss, founder of Black Hat and Def Con, has been pushing along for some ways to equip better routing and filtering for these things. Um, and I suspect many of those will get their day in court soon as we're getting more interest. But uh, there's a continuum of solutions. We should look at all of them. Uh, we should make sure we avoid things with uh, ugly trade-offs. Um, but I don't think there's a lasting solution given the volume of additional IoT coming to the Internet. Um, they're going to outstrip the ability for any sort of DDoS solution to scale, uh, especially for those who can't afford those more costly solutions. So um, I don't think it's easy to boil the ocean nor practical, but I think uh, the strategic response has to include something of including higher hygiene uh, endpoints. Alan, I know that um, NTIA looks at the telecommunications side. You also look at the endpoint side. When you've been doing your multi-stakeholder workshops, how did you balance priorities between the interconnects and the endpoints? So um, there have been a number of approaches of thinking about security from a more holistic perspective. First, there was a, uh, an initiative that... Uh, took place a few years ago, it was led by the White House on a code of conduct for botnets uh, between ISPs. Uh, that found that, that it did achieve uh, some good outcomes. I think there is uh, some strong push from uh, the Internet community, including the ISPs, to re-examine that, and I think we'll hear some more calls for that. Uh, one of the reasons that conversation plateaued 
was they said this is a problem that doesn't just affect the service providers. It actually needs to incorporate other aspects of the ecosystem. Uh, and that word ecosystem is very powerful because it, you, you appreciate it. You only appreciate an ecosystem when something either gets much bigger than it used to be or much smaller than it used to be, and then you understand how well connected everything is. Um, the Internet service provider community itself uh, has done some great work appreciating this uh, with uh, a report released a year and a half ago called CISRIC4. Um, and I cannot uh, place what CISRIC stands for off the top of my head, uh, but it really was an excellent look at how uh, the NIST cybersecurity framework might be applied to something as complex as the service provider ecosystem and it had an excellent exploration of what this concept of the ecosystem uh, means, how you need to really have all parties at the table if you're going to make substantive progress. Okay, thank you. Uh, here's the next question. Thank you. Our next question will come from Seth Rosenblatt with the Parallax. Thanks again, everyone, for, for doing this call. Uh, the two questions I have are, they're, they're, they're connected. Uh, one is, what comes next? Uh, if this attack isn't enough to create the climate needed for stakeholders to to uh, to change, and um, since the Krebs attack happened so recently, are we going to see uh, more disruptive DDoS attacks via insecure IoT devices uh, on a regular basis? Well, I hope this is Josh. I hope we don't see more, but I suspect we will. Um, as you've been covering cybersecurity for quite some time. Um, you know, whether you call this the, uh, the feeding frenzy when there's a little blood in the water, the shark, you know, circle quickly, uh, or the gold rush effect. You know, you find one security flaw in OpenSSL, assuming it's been secure for years, and you find 31 other flaws in the same calendar year. So you tend to see the first of a kind gets attention and adversaries get into user insecure settings that you've seen against Krebs or on Friday, but there is no shortage at all of uh, other lower hanging fruit. Um, so I, I do suspect we'll see more, and the, the motives and the, um, and the methods used will be as varied as they are in the human condition, right? Uh, you'll probably see some activism, have a new trick. Uh, you'll see... Um, um, Hopefully you won't see ideological attackers, speaking of trick, right? Uh, very few people really even saw the story of an anonymous hacker from Team Poison in the UK who radicalized and joined ISIS and moved to Raqqa, Syria to help with the cyber caliphate. Uh, he was not a very robust hacker, but he was talented enough to take advantage of a free open source botnet or, a, or rent a, a leg of this. I think uh, I saw a story this morning that you can rent part of this botnet for $7,500. Um, so how you use it once you do get a, uh, get a hold of it could be um, used for protest, could be used to take out a competitor, could be used to uh, to attack a political party during the last weeks of this campaign. Uh, I think we're going to see a lot more of these, and that's one of the reasons we felt it uh, urgent enough to, to have this conversation started today. All right, thanks. Uh, next question, please. Thank you. Our next question will come from Ariel Robinson with Freelance Writer. You talked a little bit about um, securing the supply chain, and um, I was wondering when we still can't come to shared international norms around how we use the Internet in the first place, how do you think we can move forward um, when we are getting components for all of these devices from all over the world? 
Well, uh, that's, a, that's a tough one. I mean, we, as I said a little bit earlier, we, we definitely seem reluctant to regulate IT, um, and we will continue with that approach until the pain of maintaining that approach exceeds the pain of uh, making a change. Um, one thing that gives me hope is, uh, as Bo and I came in from the, the cavalry into the think tank here at the Atlantic Council, um, we've, we've noticed that a lot of the cybersecurity conversations between nation states have been about areas like conflict and information and sharing and acts of war, uh, and there's been a lot of issues which merit good conversation but seem to move about an inch a year. Uh, when we turn things on their side and focus on our shared consequences of our shared dependence on a global supply chain of uh, industrial IoT and manufacturing cars and medical devices, uh, the hope I have is that we have some common ground there, that it's in our mutual interest to have more trustworthy and reliable uh, hardware, firmware, software supply chains, uh, because uh, even our adversaries have, um, you know, cars and public transportation and medical equipment that's currently equally exposed. So um, I know that uh, Rod Beckstrom used to take the MAD, the Mutually Assured Destruction Model from nuclear uh, deterrence and, and talked about mutually assured dependence and mutually assured disruption. Uh, so there is some area of common interest and perhaps common um, investment that we could make in having better cyber hygiene for at least safety critical and national security services. Um, that's early stage discussion, but some of our, you know, long-term uh, adversaries in the nation-state community um, have just as much exposure as we do. Are we seeing them subject to the same attacks that we are? This one hit Europe and the Americas and Japan, but that leaves some other adversaries uh, pretty clean. I mean, specific to these attacks we saw Friday, I don't have that information right now. Kind of. One of the attacks was directed against a French web host company. That's right. Uh, and, um, and this is a global phenomenon. There's been data from Akamai that has shown that the source of a lot of malicious web traffic is from, uh, the global, from, from third world countries or from developing countries. So, and I think there is a large and growing appreciation in the international world, uh, that this is a global phenomenon and the U.S is at the greatest risk because we have uh, the most dependence on tech infrastructure. We also have the most advanced security defenses and the most advanced security um, industry in the world. Yeah, you know, when, the, when we launched the Cavalry three years ago, our organizing principle, our problem statement, uh, was around this dependence idea. Uh, and it was that our dependence on connected technology was growing faster than our ability to secure it in areas affecting public safety and human life. And if you pull that thread for national security points to make here, those nations more dependent on connected technology are therefore more exposed. Uh, and since many of the superpowers share comparable dependence, uh, there is that mutual entanglement uh, which could work to our benefit. But this should give great concern for our national security apparatus that less uh, developed countries or subnationals, non-state actors, and ideological groups um, they would lose very little from disrupting the shared, shared resources of the Internet, uh, and the U.S. would lose much more than most would. So we have to look at the relative dependence and the relative um, uh, contingency plan, uh, and there's an argument to make sure we have an analog backup for a lot of these things. I know the Navy, for example, was starting to teach people how to use sextants again in case they lose uh, electronic uh, navigation. Um, 
And this may be a prudent exploration for things where the consequences of failure are acceptable uh, to have analog backups or offline backups. All right, uh, I think we'll do one last question and then we'll wrap. Thank you. Our next question will come from Adam Benson with Verge Strategies. Hi, everybody, and thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I, I just want to ask if there are any red flags on products that people should look for, anything that should tip anybody off. It's, I mean, for those people who are going out and buying something today and they're under a rock and they haven't heard about this, what are the kinds of things that we could tell them that might be worthwhile to look out for on products and so forth that they might buy and they're actually just opening a door to their home or office? Uh, at the moment, I, I would love to be able to tell you that they should look for something like a five-star safety rating for uh, IoT. Uh, we, we did write up more than the five categories for the consumer electronics in our smart home paper that we can put in the, as a follow-up email. Um, we'd love to be able to look at uh, the next home router that you purchase and have it clearly indicate if it's patchable for how long they're willing to patch it. I think uh, that there is really no consistent or readily available indicators to enable free market choice for uh, more, uh, pro uh, more secure products from less secure. Clearly, the ones that invest more may cost more, but uh, the total cost of ownership or the value to you uh, may be higher. Um, so in lieu of that, um, one of the only pieces of advice I can give people is uh, to, to maybe err on uh, more established brands um, that are, have more staying power, uh, because even if the device is patchable, if they go out of business, you're not going to have ongoing care and maintenance. Um, that said, you know, many of the new innovations we have are these small little startups that aren't as established. Um, so right now, I think the reason that this is such a, a, a keen interest to some of the senators, to NTIA, to the Presidential Commission on Enhancing Cybersecurity, there are so many people focused on this because there are very poor indicators uh, and, and market signals that allow uh, a user to act in their own best interest. And that's what we have to aggressively aim to resolve. And Adam, I'll just add that, uh, underscoring what Josh said, that, that this goal of having a free market transparency, creating a functional market for security is a priority, and that's why NTI is focusing on exactly this. We identified the lack of uh, the, you know, the common way of communicating that this device uh, is secure. Well, what does it mean that the device is secure? At the very least, you can say this device will continue to receive security updates for a certain amount of time. Uh, hopefully, that is something that industry stakeholders will be able to push out uh, fairly quickly. There's, there's a lot of demand for it on the consumer side. There's a lot of attention for it uh, by consumer advocacy organizations and by large organizations that buy things and sell things. And then finally, uh, manufacturers themselves want to be able to, to justify their investment in security. They want to be able to command a little extra money and get a little extra brand reputation for caring about security. So there really is a, a large demand for this. Uh, we think it'll just be a matter of time. Yeah, I think yeah, even if we just aim for some really simple um, labels, I, I would argue that if you take a look at the five-star automotive cyber safety framework or the Hippocratic Oath, those five things um, are something my neighbor understands, my my sister understands, my teacher understands. Um, we don't want to make something that requires everyone to be security experts. And the nice thing about labeling is, you know, just because we have a nutrition label doesn't mean we don't still sell and eat junk food but at least you know what you're getting and you can make uh, informed de decisions uh, that may be better for your own safety, your own security, your own family, but also for these externalities that we're passing into the Internet. Uh, I guess one closing thought, we, this is becoming a common theme with us, but uh, 
we often refer to the Cuyahoga River, which caught on fire in Cleveland over 20 times before we actually did something to introduce the Clean Water Act. Uh, and I don't know if you can count this as an Internet on fire. I know many of the people that were affected called it an Internet on fire. But, you know, it may take several of these before we are sufficiently motivated. Uh, but given the very uncomfortable uh, nature of some of the policy responses and the very long lead times to, to Im implement them and bring new products to market, I think now is the time to start those dialogues. Uh, I know we'll be working on it. And if you're interested in doing so or collaborating, um, please reach out. Thank you. There are no further questions in the queue. I'd like to turn the floor back over to Mr. Woods for closing remarks. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, I think we had some really good questions here today, brought up some, some tough choices that we as a nation of society and a global community will have to look at in the coming days, but also in the coming weeks, months, and years. Uh, and I wanted to thank our, um, our two panelists, Joshua Corman, uh, director of the uh, Federal Statecraft Initiative at the Atlantic Council, um, and then uh, Alan Friedman. Um, thank you very much for being here, uh, and uh, thank you to the folks calling in. We appreciate your time. We'll send uh, some follow-up information along, and if you have some questions for us, maybe something that you didn't want to ask uh, in an open public forum, um, then feel free to send those along as well. Uh, and with that, we'll close for today.